Do you want to go into stasis for the rest of the trip and forfeit 18 months' wages? Do you want to listen to Dwarf Cast by Ganymede and Titan? Choose. Awoga, this is a Dwarf Cast. Hello and welcome to a brand new edition of the Dwarf Cast Book Club brought to you by Ganymede and Titan. This is the series where we reread, discuss, and dissect the four Red Dwarf novels part by part, and uh, we're now on to book two, Better Than Life, starting, of course, with part one, Game Over. Uh, gathered round the GT Towers dining table tonight uh, are Jonathan Capps. Hi. Danny Stevenson. Hello. And me, Ian Symes. So as usual, we'd recommend that you re-familiarise yourself with the book before listening, uh, and if for whatever reason you've never read this book before, then uh, definitely do so. Um, if anyone has not uh, read this book or the subsequent ones, we're not, we're going to do our best not to be too spoilery for what happens next, uh, but of course we will be spoilerific about the first part of the book. Um, we'd like to apologise as well before we get started uh, for the delay uh, to this episode. We had a couple of uh, unexpected issues that caused us to uh, cancel uh, our previous recording. So, if you've forgotten what happened at the end of the last book, here's a little recap. Having returned to Earth a hero, Lister has married Kachansky and assumed a quiet life in the fictional town of Bedford Falls, under the name George Bailey. But when he rubs ointment into painful areas of his arms, it reveals the messages U equals BTL and dying. He realises he's trapped in the addictive video game better than life, and tracks down Rimmer, now the ultra-rich time-travelling inventor of the Solidgram, who's recently discovered that his Brazilian bombshell wife Juanita is cheating on him. Rimmer refuses to believe this isn't reality, but a visit to the cat who lives in a golden castle surrounded by naked eight-foot Valkyries and fire-breathing yaks confirms Lister's suspicions. <laughs> Crichton suddenly appears to explain what happened. Lister got pissed after repairing the Nova 5 and found the cat had plugged himself into a BTL headset. He went in to rescue him and got stuck. Rimmer did the same, but Crichton's immunity to desire allowed him to succeed. All they need to do to leave the game is to imagine an exit and walk through it. Lister returns to Bedford Falls to do so, but hesitates at the thought of leaving his family on Christmas Eve. But of course, in Bedford Falls, it was always Christmas Eve. Oh, fuck, what's going to happen? Well, clearly, at the end of the last book... Uh, Lister leaves better than life and goes back to normal <laughs> and everything's fine. But wait. But wait. There's more. Why is this book called Better Than Life then? <laughs> it's weird, right? So when I starting to starting to read this, so there's been a few comments about how this book feels very different. I think International Debris said the book feels very different. Can't imagine it being all one thing. Which is mm. kind of true and kind of kind of not, I think, in my mind. Because like this first bit feels almost like a retread of what we just got at the end of the first book. You know what I mean? Like almost like there's, there's a lot of this stuff that wouldn't have existed if it had been smushed into one book because it kind of would have flowed a bit more. That opening bit, the very opening chapter is a Rimmer one. Um, yeah. And yeah, it's all the same kind of stuff of him time traveling and having adventures with famous people and stuff. I did find it interesting that it opens with Rimmer. Um, whereas the last Better Than Life section in Infinity was kind of Lister's story. Lister yeah. was the one that was driving it, whereas Rimmer is more of the protagonist this time around uh, because, as we'll come to, everything that happens is, is kind of driven by Rimmer. I um, mean, quite he, literally. He, he, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> 
he impacts on Lister's story, but it's Rimmer's yeah. story that's driving it. So this is the story of the of the disintegration of the world, and because that disintegration is led by Rimmer, and he's our and his diseased eyes. brain. Yeah, but yeah, I found it interesting. Uh, just uh, sticking on the opening bit, it's about his stagnite, um, and as part of his stagnite, he goes to Twenties America. Um, like he does in <laughs> Twentica, <laughs> uh, and he meets Kennedy and Caligula and Jesus, uh, all, all of which would later, in some form or other, appear in Red Dwarf, but not yet. Bloody hell, I hadn't clocked that. <laughs> I mean, Caligula is like one that Rob and Doug were involved with, but all the others are Doug only. A Doug only. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So maybe this was a Doug bit of the book. I mean, there's, it's not not the only um, example of something that will pop up in a Doug only thing. So maybe he read this book as as a, in desperation in in nineteen ninety five, <laughs> as he was writing <laughs> series seven. But I do like the idea of the gate crashing the Last Supper as a is a is a such a, it's such a weird red dwarfy thing to do. It's a little bit. I think even Monty Python like wanted to do that at one point. I think that was one of the early ideas for um, the Life of Brian. For Life of Brian, yeah. I'm sure, there was going to be something to do with like a. I was going to be some yeah. It's, they were like oh like table for. Table for twelve. I can't do. A, I can't do a twelve. But I can do. I can do a seven and a six. I can. I can put it together that way. It's like something else that I found interesting about that bit is that it's a whole time travel thing, and it's like lots of time traveling type jokes. But um, Rimmer is wearing a what's described as a real time watch, so he's constantly keeping an eye on what the time is back home, which is an interesting way of making time travel work. So it's like time travel is linear. Yeah. In the the technology that Rimmer's invented, like he can't go back and forth, like you can't leave and then return in the same instant as you left. Time is constantly flowing in uh, in back in his reality. The clock in San Dimas is always ticking. Yeah, yeah that's exactly <laughs> what it made me think of as well. Uh, unlike most other <laughs> time travel yeah. things. It, it, where... adds, it adds an interesting wrinkle to it, like it, it you, you've got to nerf time travel, right? If you've got it, and and yeah. while this time travel doesn't have to make any bloody sense um, narratively in this, it's got a, a watertight reason for it not to make sense. It's still nice that they've kind of like the sci-fi authors and fans in them had to had to kind of throw in some that their own little bit of the rules, I guess. And it's like what we were saying last time is that uh, in Better Than Life, everything that happens has to be plausible. In order for you, you know, not to detect that you're in the game, um, so that it, you know, life isn't just, you know, magically everything appears. However, this time round, uh, Rimmer is well aware that he's in the game, mm. uh, but he doesn't care. It's like it's in a different mode, isn't it? It's like the game is designed to also survive if they know they're in the game, and because if they know, then it can just throw anything it wants at them to try and tempt them. Yeah. Because it doesn't have to hide itself anymore. It's kind of like, yeah, it's in sandbox mode. <laughs> yeah. After, you, after you've completed the main mode. story mode. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that's weird, because that's normally when I kind of lose my steam for open world games. Like, you know, I've done the story, and then it's like, oh, you can just go and pick up the side stuff, and I tend to drop off at that point. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it is It is interesting, like with, especially with Rimmer stuff. I think the reason that I'm maybe being a bit unfair to it, saying it just feels like a retread, is that we're going through the historical figures thing again, and just... Mm. But it is a nice little trick that they pull on us about the, the wedding, because actually I'd forgotten... Um, I think when I read this originally, and actually even on the reread, it kind of momentarily tricked me. It's like, oh, so he wasn't married to Winita in the last book and he was he's about to be married to her 
I was like, I, I missed the Helen reveal, basically. Yeah. Uh, it was, it's, it's kind of a nice little uh, a nice little detail. I think let's talk about the kind of the whole Rimmer story, I guess, and then and then go back to the other bits because it's like this novel, um, this part at least, skips around in a non-linear yeah. fashion, which the the other books don't tend to do. Or at least the first book didn't very much. Like there was a bit at the start where things were happening concurrently with various different kind of like Saunders and McIntyre and Lister, but this time around, I remember being really confused when I read it as a kid as to how it all linked up because like how can Trixie Labouche crash into Bedford Falls in a juggernaut when Trixie Labouche has it <laughs> is yeah. over there and and Rimmer hasn't like yeah non-linear storytelling to an eight-year-old is is a difficult concept yeah probably the first instance of it yeah, yeah. Uh, so it makes it kind of tricky to talk about in a traditional way so like yeah let's let's bash through some of the the Rimmer stuff that's going on so yeah he's He's left Juanita, or Juanita has has left him uh, at some point, and he's 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 met this new woman, Helen, who is his mom. <laughs> yeah, he suddenly realizes it's like his. It's when 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 he's deconstructing everything about everything that surrounds him, because there's obviously there's still a, an element of like the game hiding itself from him, but he suddenly realizes who everyone is in the real in the real world. He seems to be like. He's constructing his fantasy in a very different way to Lister, and it's, it it feels a lot like how dreams work as well. Where Rimmer suddenly realizes, well, Winita was Frank's wife. You know, Helen's my my mum. You know, this mm. everyone has their real world equivalent. Whereas Lister was more um, rooted in the fantasy of it being three million years in the future and everyone having to be descendants of. Uh, you know, like Kachansky being a descendant of Kachansky rather than just some person that just happened to be exactly like Kachansky that he doesn't really think about, if you see what I mean. Yeah. I think Rimmer's maybe maybe more in a position, obviously, where he's deconstructing everything around him and starting to realise, you know, where all the the weird joins are. There's a point that uh, Clem makes that the first few chapters of this book um, spell out that both Rimmer and Lister have really doubled down on their fantasies. Uh, they know they're playing the game and decided not to leave, so anything goes. Yeah. So yeah, um, Rimmer's Rimmer just gets more extreme with what he's doing. Um, meanwhile, Lister's fantasy, which we'll come to later, is get is got more schmaltzy prior to Rimmer <laughs> turning up and ruining it. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. Clem, Clem also points out with Rimmer, he's got teenage girls throwing their undies at the car, and it's a bit icky. <laughs> yeah. It's it's kind of a trope. It's, it's a trope, isn't it? It's a Beatles trope. Yeah. That, that has, wasn't, yeah, wasn't don't, really, don't think about it too. Yeah, there wasn't really. Say, say that they're eighteen and nineteen, and it's fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I will ignore the um, pubescent comment uh, that's in the book. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, I think that that's a trope that really wasn't examined very much at the time. Obviously, post Savile, that has been, you know, do you know what I mean? Oh, not even that post U Tree, like that sort of like yeah. oh, pop stars attract, you know teenage girls children yeah you know, children basically um, it was just kind of like oh yeah it's just that world whereas now it's very different uh, but yeah. uh, but that's a bit post-marxist for a uh, book club yeah well there there are some deep bits in this um like i think more so really than infinity about rimmer's brain because uh, there's the bit where he, he talks where he talks about Juanita for the first time and it's it's confirmation that as he puts it, his psyche just doesn't like him, yeah. which is why Juanita exists, where she's this beautiful, perfect woman, but she absolutely hates him, and, yeah. and like he's stuck with her, even though she's horrible. 
um, and yeah, it gets really deep. Uh, really, like quite early on in the book, it gets pretty deep with Rimmer talking about he deserves punishment mm. because he's such a failure in life. His brain, and you know, he consciously and subconsciously believes that he deserves to be punished for being a failure, which is you know, it's quite quite sad. It's quite sad, and you can easily. Um, I believe that it's come from his upbringing as well. Like everything we know about his parents, that's like very consistent. Um, yeah. With that, and interesting how his parents feature in his in his fantasy as well. It's like he's married his mum, and mm. and that's almost like a terrible thing that's happened. That he's trying to trick himself into thinking, you know, he deserves like he deserves Helen rather than you know the woman that he's supposed to love. Yeah. But then there's um, then of course Juanita does turn back up and he does kind of get back with um Juanita because she's now had personality surgery yeah to to, to remove the bits of her personality that didn't work which is something from Can of Worms the Fucking brilliant hell, episode yeah. of um series 11 yeah like deliberate which is such a small such a small part in it like the personality nip tuck machine that gets mentioned once or twice just never gets used again yeah and that that yeah. term as well the nipping and tucking yeah of of a personality, yeah, it's very straight because if if the book doesn't, and we are jumping about a lot here actually, but I think yeah. it's a this is this is a part that kind of um, needs this kind of non-linear analysis. Um, but when we get onto his tricksy stuff, and he he actually self he he questions his his own attitudes to women. If that yeah. wasn't in there, <laughs> all this personality <laughs> nip tuck stuff would have uh, would have landed quite differently. But um, I- I'm still not quite sure how to make or what to make of it. Really, yeah, I think it is. It's Rimmer's unpleasant attitude towards women is something that is consistent with the se- with the TV series because it's it's partly there in the parallel universe as well. Mm. Um, but yeah, I think you're right. At least he acknowledges it at this time, and maybe yeah. like his experience as Trixie would help him to come to terms with it and improve. Yeah, that's true. Like you know, Rimmer's the one that goes on a journey really throughout this. I mean, I think we can all we can all agree that Cat learns nothing. And to be <laughs> honest, this was a this was a site like Lister didn't need any sort of self discovery in Better Than Life, this was just a pure kind of escapism thing for him, but whereas, whereas for Rimmer, this has genuinely probably been, like, improving, self-improving. Despite, yeah, you know. actually quite useful. <laughs> yeah, Whether that stuff actually still carries outside the game is another matter. It's difficult, yeah. it's difficult to know, because we get back into the status quo, and it there's no real opportunity to apply the life lessons because they're not in the real life, and you know, they're not in a, a normal life anymore. Um, so yeah, he learns all these lessons on how to deal with like society, like people and women, <laughs> and it's lessons that he could only ever apply if he was in better than life anyway. Oh yeah, not least because <laughs> coupled with the fact that the human race is now extinct, <laughs> some might say he's <laughs> yeah. left it a little bit on the light side. <laughs> I was wondering during this during sort of Rimmer's downfall in this book, is part of it his psyche actually trying to help? Is he trying to? Is his psyche subconsciously trying to save him from the game by completely? How much of it is that he he deep down he believes he deserves to be punished, and so therefore that's why his his brain is giving him what he thinks he wants, which is to be punished. But alternatively, another reading of it is that his his self loathing is actually working in his favour 
because he loses everything. He loses his business, like, in the space of a phone call. He goes from being one of the richest men in the world to losing absolutely everything. Um, he's, he has a horrible time at his wedding. He runs away from his wedding. His body gets repossessed. He ends up in jail. Uh, he ends up um, <laughs> having to escape in a woman's body. He ends up being forced into prostitution. Like... How bad can things possibly be before he says, do you know what, I'm going to just fucking leave this game? Yeah, you're right. Is, it, <laughs> is that actually his psyche being useful and saying, well, you need to leave. We're going to make it as bad as possible for you to force you to leave. I think that's a valid reading. In the TV show, it's a, it's obviously it's a shallower concept because it has to be. Um, and it's more just, oh, Rimmer's diseased brain, he's ruined a perfectly good game. Whereas this is a, mm. not a perfectly good game, it's a very dangerous game. So everything going tits up, it can be read in a completely different way because you're not ruining anything by by creating a terrible experience, you're saving everyone. So Yeah, he needed to smash Lister's fantasy up yeah. in order to... Because like, Lister wouldn't have left if he could just live no. out the rest of his days with his version of Kachansky and his version of Bedford Falls. Yeah. It's an interesting thing, and we are massively skipping ahead. <laughs> Sorry, everyone. Oh, actually, let's skip back, because we have an excuse for this. There's a prologue in this book, which I'd forgotten about. Uh, the prologue says, Time is a character in this novel. It does strange things, moves in strange directions, and at strange speeds. Don't trust time. Time will always get you in the end. So we have an excuse for just skipping about like maniacs and not following this in a proper <laughs> time is occurring order. in random pockets. It totally is. <laughs> There's also a thanks in there that basically says, "Don't trust Norman Lovett. Norman Lovett will get you in the end." But thank you to Hattie <laughs> Heritage. Yeah, everyone apart from Norman is thanked. <laughs> yeah, that's a that's a cool little prologue, and I I completely forgotten about that as well. I've never forgotten what I was going to say. When I, oh yeah. So Rimmer basically ruins everyone's fantasies um, and that's partly how they get out. With Lister, he has a direct effect on it when he turns into Trixie LaBouche and drives a juggernaut through Bedford Falls and destroys the entire town. But with Cat, it seems like just the presence of Rimmer, like Rimmer approaching like a force field around Rimmer ruins his fantasy. It's like the milk in his moat curdles just when Rimmer is near. (laughs) That's like the TV version, isn't it? Like Lister's money disappears just because Rimmer is there in the vicinity. In proximity. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Even the Valkyries have gone on strike as well because like <laughs> Rimmer's starting to infect that kind of part of the thing. They've uni- you know? unionised, yeah. <laughs> that was it as well. Crichton's mop handle breaks. <laughs> Crichton breaks his mop handle and so his fantasy's ruined as well. It's like a virus just like slowly mm. sweeping its way through. Oh yes, he's a virus that's infected the game. There's a thing in some computer games that is it's not exactly like this, but it reminds me of it. That um if they detect that you're playing a pirated version, they don't just lock you out, they fuck with you. <laughs> uh yep. like if Ser- yeah. Serious Sam um spawns an invincible scorpion if it detects that you're playing a <laughs> a pirated game. So you just can't really play it anymore. And it's almost like I, I don't know. I, it's not like I say. It's not very similar, but it's almost like the game is kind of just warping in some way that, in a way that it wasn't really supposed to be. It's interesting because the thing is, it's that they do say that Better Than Life was pirated, so it could be the game. Oh yeah, <laughs> like having have some sort of piracy protection. That would explain the Invincible Scorpion in Part Three. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but that's but there. This like uh, was it Spyro Two? I think it was or Spyro Three had like some incredible like 
piracy detection system where the first of all the fairy tells you it's a pirated game and then starts removing gems like once you've collected them and just makes the game near impossible to complete <laughs> and just starts fucking with you in just ridiculous way so it is like that really it's yeah. like it just starts corrupting data as you're going through so that's like yeah. Rimmer is basically just corrupting everything He's as you rewriting goes memory and, yeah which is more yeah it's more um feasible because he is his brain is a computer program so yeah. like this he's this, a hologram this corrupted computer program has entered better than life and oh, it's wow. fucking up the yeah. code of everyone else's fantasy have they well. ever so that's something they've never tested an edge case scenario yeah. where they've never tested a hologram in better than life Can to I? see yeah. what would happen oh, yeah. oh wow rimmer is a that's trojan good. horse basically very good we've just come across two brand new interpretations of this fucking book uh, possibly reaching a bit, but never mind. Oh yeah, very much so. I mean, but I like I like the idea of it. Though. It's the thing that sets Rimmer apart from the others, uh, other than the fact that his brain isn't very nice. <laughs> you know that he <laughs> he is a hologram and he is he's not actually a human conscious. He's not a he's not a squishy brain hooked up to this. He um you know a, a, all of his memories, all of his drives, and everything are a lot more logical because they kind of la- have to be laid out that way. It's two layers of computer simulation on top of each other. Because yeah. you've got a computer simulation of a human playing a computer simulation of a, a fantasy. So it's like, what does that do? Yeah. Whoa. Whoa. But yeah, well, what it does is ruin everyone else's <laughs> fantasies. <laughs> but it's not like, yeah, but it's like Lister was, oh no, I suppose Lister's fantasy didn't really start to crumble until Rimmer got involved. It wasn't. No, Rimmer. They started to break. It well, Lister it started breaking down. Was. Like, Lister started this whole thing. Because he he had the he had the pain in his arms and he could have ignored that because apparently it seems to have gone away. Oh, it goes away because Crichton comes in the game. But um, he could have ignored that. But he he started pulling at that thread. So even Lister is like he's a rogue element. Yeah, yeah if he finds out ah uh, if this isn't real, I'm not sure if I'm okay with that. And that's basically what drove him to go to see Rimmer because otherwise he'd ignore it and just say I, I, mm. I don't care. I'm just going to keep going. Yeah, I mean, we don't. I don't think we know how long has elapsed between, unless it does get mentioned. I think maybe it, it does get mentioned, mentioned how long has elapsed between years. the two levels. It does say two years again, and then Jim and Bexley two years four. since the first one. Oh wow, yeah. Jim and Bexley four, but then that that could mean anything. Like that could be the day. After. I mean, yeah, yeah. We discussed last time that two years in game time it doesn't necessarily equate to two years yeah. in real life. But yeah, throughout however long it's been. Um, between the two novels, Lister has seemingly decided to just ignore mm-hmm. the fact that he's he's <laughs> not in reality. Which again is like it always seems to be Doug Only Dwarf where I'm drawing the parallels. But um, in Back to Earth, when they realise that they're not in reality, but is the effects of a joy squid, uh, Lister doesn't care initially and elects to stay there yeah. so that he can be with a version of Kachansky. And it's only eventually. He realizes now. I'm gonna to need to go back to reality, mm. so to speak. <laughs> <laughs> I just need to go back to reality too. But yeah, it's it's. I guess it's it's therefore consistent for Lister to have that temptation to just say, yeah, I know that this isn't real, but this is so much better than my situation in real life. That fuck it. There's an old cat saying: it's better to live one hour as a tiger than a whole lifetime as a worm. <laughs> What's interesting, actually, is that Lister does fight until the end. Like, he's still resisting pretty much up until the last moment. Yeah, he thinks he can salvage it. Yeah. It's like, the town is destroyed, Kachansky's left him, and, yeah, everything and else. everyone hates him. Yeah. yeah. 
I was going to say about the body stuff because we mentioned the solidogram stuff with Rimmer while we're on Rimmer is that I thought it was quite an in, it's quite interesting it's a good example of like them going a bit batshit with the BTL concept and that um you know rather than just that uh, you know it be kind of oh Rimmer's a millionaire is that Rimmer has has invented the solidogram and he's constantly changing his body and then he is a sound wave consciousness that can jump between bodies like it really goes kind of like all in which uh, I think is quite interesting yeah yeah the thing of him constantly getting a bigger and bigger penis <laughs> until the point where it's he, he wouldn't be able to stand up straight with it <laughs> okay let's talk about that whole bit with when Rimmer gets incarcerated he gets his body confiscated and he exists as a sound wave bouncing around a padded cell it's like basically it becomes a whole different novel at one stage like especially yeah. with the kind of the breakout they mentioned tonto and jimmy uh, at least one of them if not both of them are characters from a, a sort of pulp fiction novel that rimmer has read and the book turns into that at this stage when they enact the um the escape uh and i quite like it yeah it's like it's not it's definitely not you know, it, it works because it's a small section of a section that's not real life anyway. But all of a sudden, yeah, there's this sort of like crime gangstery breaking out of jail type section, except that it's it, it's sound waves that are escaping through jail. But it does it does quite clever things like traveling in the uh, walkie talkies and yeah, things like does. that. I feel like a jump is made at some point where when when we're introduced to the solid gram and, and Rimmer is like described more as like a soul like essence floating out of his body and then into a new one and at some point yeah. that becomes oh he's just a, he's a sound wave your soul is just a, is just your voice and then just so <laughs> yeah. you can escape through the walkie-talkie but it's worth it because the escaping through the walkie-talkie is like by far the coolest part of this whole part i think the bit that doesn't really make sense well i suppose this is an audiobook problem rather than a but as you know, it doesn't mention the book as well, but the, the idea of you being a sound wave and then, but when you go into another body, your voice is different. So, yeah, Rimmer, when he's in Trix's body, speaks like a woman, has yeah. a woman's yeah. voice. You have a woman's voice. I just voice find that voice. strange. So, it's just, I don't know. It, it, it's it's a bit fudgy. It's a bit fudgy, that bit. I'll be honest with you, because we obviously we've had to have delay this a few times, but we when I've been trying to think about the passage and stuff, I've been really struggling as to a bit that stands out. And it's like a lot of this stuff in the in the, the heist and all the rest of it and the escape and all the rest of it, it's like this kind of lost me a little bit. Mm. And I don't know if it's just like I couldn't visualise it as well as I can visualise the stuff from a dwarf. But it just seemed very... It just seems, like, like I said, it just feels very different yeah. to what you normally get. And I just think that... I just found it difficult to visualise, I think. It, it's the blessing yeah. and curse of it being a book. It's like it's it's great. Like they're branching out and they're writing they're they're, they're trying bits from all different genres and mixing everything together. But it's also bad because they're trying out lots of things from those different genres and mixing things together when actually <laughs> we want to be reading a red dwarf novel. <laughs> and I think that's where I get stuck with it. I think there's definitely room for both. But I get I get what you're saying, Danny, about how like your mind's eye can struggle with it at times. I picture this as just like this really seedy, dirty, middle America, motels, neon signs, all that kind of stuff. Basically, mm. um, to go to a Rob Grant solo thing for a change, like the Strangerers kind of universe uh, where they live, which, you know, <laughs> that's on a sort of more on a limited budget. 
uh, of trying to depict this type of thing. But the yeah, that's the kind of, it's like that fifties schlock B movie type uh, scenario. Yeah, and don't get me wrong, I think that bit would look great in a film. But yeah. just, it just, uh, you know what I mean. I think it'd be really good. I just find it really difficult to visualize. Even the audio book, I couldn't quite get my head around it. There was a lot. I don't know. I think it's just because a lot of new characters introduced very quickly, and then it's like you've got to kind of. Yeah. I think that's what it is. I think there's just a lot going on, and then and then you know that that whole section's kind of dealt with, and then you know it does feel very Rob Grant that bit. To be fair, it does feel like a very Rob Grant sound thing. It's very visceral. There is a mention of gonad electrocution kits at one stage. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's from Bohemian. In this, the, in this uh, section, the, that's right. Yeah, that's right. Because Rimmer's uh, gym teacher that's now the security guard. Oh yeah, yeah. So again, yeah, I like what you said, Catsiella, about dreams, and so characters from Rimmer's past turn up in different guises. Mm, that's good. Yeah, and and he's starting to bring people in from just straight up lifting them out of shitty books and. Um, and to the point where they've got the exact same personalities, like they're not being masked in any way. They've got the same personalities. They say the same lines, the same catchphrases. Like um, when Tonto dies, um, you know, <laughs> life's, like, a life's like a just stick. It's, it, it stinks really, when it's over. Yeah, it stinks when it's over. <laughs> Fuck's sake! And um, <laughs> when he when he killed the the cop, was it? Said, um, "Sorry, man, but you're the establishment." <laughs> <laughs> I tell you what, it does. It does feel a bit more like Back to Reality with the uh, the government mm. informer stuff. It does feel more like that in terms of a world, like, yeah, say, like the neon signs true. and stuff. Yeah. It does feel like the bit you know when they go in the back alley and they're about to commit suicide, like the burger yeah. bath. Thing. Well, it's like the inverse. That's kind of the world. That it's like the inverse of It's a Wonderful Life, isn't it? It's like maybe similar time stream. Uh, uh, you know, yeah, you know, but just it's it's not dissimilar to to Pottersville, which is the alternate reality in It's a Wonderful Life uh, in which George never existed in oh, Bedford no. Falls it gets taken over by Potter it's very yeah. much that world so Bedford in Falls which the timeline skewed into this tangent <laughs> oh yeah it's also like alternate 1985 <laughs> big neon signs and everything. I think I'm maybe getting hung up on neon signs too much I think neon what signs the hell's wrong with neon it's like, it's a, perfect it's like a kebab shop <laughs> it's a very it's a noble, noble gas, gas. <laughs> it's, good. it's done nothing wrong just quickly on, on Tonto another of his quotes is one of my favourite gags in the book really is, he says oh I hate killing people it's such a downer and then the next bit of prose is three downers later <laughs> yeah, yeah, <it's> good. <laughs> that's the sort of snappy snappy writing that like is basically everywhere at the start of Infinity that maybe yeah. is possibly um, missing a little bit here, but another good example is um, when Rimmer is like driving the juggernaut towards um, Bedford Falls, and he knocks over the population sign, uh, the line, <laughs> uh, a sign that will soon to be oh, incredibly, yeah. incredibly <laughs> inaccurate. Um, yeah, really, really good. Oh, if we're talking about um, Grant Neal prose, I've got a uh, a point that I'd like to make, and it's a it's a point that I'm making in tribute. Uh, to uh, Seb Patrick who I remember having a conversation with him about this like three or four years ago in a uh, while we were eating pizza in Liverpool uh, I don't know why we were talking about it but we just were you don't uh, know why you it's... were talking about Red Dwarf Ian Simes and oh, Seb yeah. Patrick <laughs> this is specific, together, specific don't know why thing. you were talking about Red Dwarf <laughs> well that was yeah we were talking about Red Dwarf but specifically this is that uh, and this is entirely Seb's point that I'm stealing because he can't do anything about it now um, he he uh, he pointed out that uh, they 
a lot of the time use nouns as verbs and for some reason I don't know whether they do it more often in this section than in others but I really noticed it when I was reading through uh, so for example uh, there's a, a, a section where Juanita is described as she sexed down the steps <laughs> <laughs> I laughed in the audio but when I heard that because I was like it's such a ridiculous word but you know exactly what they mean <laughs> yeah. yeah it's like yeah using that noun it, yeah it, it just it cuts out so much description that yeah. you would need to otherwise do with sort of adverbs and adjectives yeah. um, at one point uh, Rimmer helicoptered round yeah. so just like turning around with his arms flailing around and then during that whole high section um, high nooned is used as a verb and Gary Coopered is used as a verb <laughs> I was going to say Gary Coopered yeah I was, yeah. was going to mention that one it's especially good because, like, helicoptering round, that's only something that Rimmer would do. Yeah. Lister wouldn't helicopter round. Like, it's its so... It's not just, you know... It's not just writing it as a, as a nice turn of phrase. It's, like, it's so descriptive of the characters. It's and good. my final example and my favourite is uh, Water Niagara. <laughs> good point, Seb. No, that was entirely my point. I'll edit out <laughs> what I previously said. Oh yeah, I did have in my notes as well. As I'm just scrolling through, that they've been in better than life for two years. Yeah, so, yeah. that's what he, he says. Like been been in been in better than life for two years. But then I don't know whether he thinks that's in in universe time or in game literal time. time. Yeah. Um, I don't think they could ever really know, like literally, how long is, they've been in there. Is that the same two years that we've heard about before, or is that two years since the last time? So is it four years, really? It's, is it is it two years after? Is it two years since they realised they were in the game? Well, if if everything's ticking That's how along at the normal rate, then it would be four years because obviously Jim and Bexley had to have been born, uh, and therefore mm. in 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 Lister's open. Well, that to have been conceived. There would yeah. yes, some sex would have had to happen, <laughs> and he'd have to meet her. Steps. So like four or five maybe, but then. You know, did, did did he have the kids, and then the next morning they were one and a half driving to the shop for milk? You know, like probably. Uh, I mean, yeah. yeah, it's difficult to tell because if it's like a dream, then things just just suddenly are, are happening, aren't they? Um, yeah. So, so obviously, it feels like they've been in the game actually about four years, but you know, yeah, that could be yeah. like three hours or whatever. I have a question actually. So if we if we're like pivoting maybe to Lister's opening chapter a little bit because it's kind of yeah. it's worth mentioning kind of how extra smaltzy this gets and so the whole yep. stuff with henry the homeless guy the ship um and uh, you know and, and mr. The mulligan. Star, mr mulligan at the start is this taken out of the film or is this kind of are they spinning off into their own weird directions now <laughs> absolutely none of that is in the film <laughs> okay, <right>. there is <laughs> this all of a sudden and i was surprised and slightly disappointed um but, uh, yeah, something weird has happened where it, there's far, far less of the film is in the book right. all of a sudden. Um, hardly anything, really. Uh, Henry the Town Drunk is is not in the book, in the in the film, rather. The, it, it slightly reminds me, especially the backstory of he got sad when old Mrs. Henry went to heaven um, and then the angels took away his kids. It's kind of like the alternative version of Old Man Gower um, that's in the bad uh, alternate reality in It's a Wonderful Life but that's a bit of a stretch uh, okay. uh, but more so than that it's Lister's backstory as George Bailey seems to have been undone a little bit as well so Uncle Billy 
turns up playing the tuba and he's the one that is the tuba player who ends up getting everything wrong and is like two songs two behind everyone else. <laughs> uncle Billy is supposed to be Lister's uncle. Uh, it's supposed to be George Bailey's uncle. Uh, and yet they don't seem to have any connection here. Right. Jim and Bexley suggests that Henry gets a room at Old Mar Bailey's boarding house. Old Mar Bailey being their grandmother. <laughs> George Bailey's mum. They seem to have changed a lot. And then there was points that people made in the comments, wasn't there? Was it Pete Part 3? Yeah. Uh, Lister's pseudonym seems to have been dropped for Better Than Life, uh, which is confirmed later on when the entire town looks at Lister at the mention of his name, and Bert refers to him as David. The It's Wonderful Life stuff seems less well-observed and more a bunch of references this time round. And I agree, except that they're not even accurate references. <laughs> That's interesting, actually. I didn't even spot the fact that when they mentioned David Lister that they knew who they meant. Well, in universe, you can kind of excuse it in that the residents of Bedford Falls did know who he was in Better Than Light, in Infinity, uh, because he came back to Earth, the three million year old man, and he was one of the most famous people, but they chose to ignore that and let, let, him, let him live yeah. his little fantasy yeah, life. of course. But now that they believe that he's responsible for the town being destroyed uh, due to a prostitute, uh, then they drop the pretense and, like, yeah, fuck you and send him to Coventry. <laughs> which is the opposite of Bedford Falls, Coventry. <laughs> it's weird, actually, that they look. These aren't real people with real emotions. So this is, you know, this is a game, and they're all kind of doing what they need to. But everyone's really immediately very quick to judge. Mm. Like, I mean, he's the three million year old man. Like, he's got a bit of a weird backstory. The fact that he that he's just a woman knows him <laughs> is <laughs> yeah. not grounds. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Even a woman who's dressed, uh, you know, in a way that they don't really like, it's not really ground for everyone to just fuck him off immediately, and his wife and kids to immediately leave him because she <laughs> so she steps out of the car and says, "I'm looking for Lister." I think that's just Rimmer's. That's just Rimmer's the got whole, the yeah. yeah he's Rimmer's just starts pushing. Everything. He's corrupting the town and the townspeople and everything around him. It's just you know immediately starts breaking things. Yeah, so. that yeah, that's that's Rimmer's force field of shit. It's it's not even realistic progressions either. Like it, the milk curdling is realistic in Cat, but um, a power um, a nuclear power plant suddenly being there is not. <laughs> yeah. uh, so that started to stretch the credulity yeah. as well. Again, that's that that so reminds me of uh, Back to the Future too with the 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 alternate nineteen eighty five with the the power plant and toxic waste plant and all that kind of stuff appearing. Yeah, just being yeah. part of that, you know, Hill Hill Valley Square, and it just yeah. it just makes me think of that. It's like I just have this lovely idea in the film of like a a three sixty shot around Lister, where the first turn is like Bedford Falls, and then as it like turns around again, oh, wow. yeah. it slowly <laughs> switches to like the, the the sky gets darker, more fires start kicking out, and then it just slowly gets worse and worse the more you revolve around him. Yeah, that's brilliant. Yeah, there's certainly a shared. Um, palette let's say for um sci-fi dystopias where people's perfect worlds come tumbling down yeah a yeah. uh, couple of uh points to to sneak in you were mentioning how unrealistic the um characters the other characters reactions are they are essentially npcs in a video game yeah even in the future <laughs> of uh you know the 20 well whichever century better than life originates in like the technology hasn't got that advanced yet that NPCs don't act like complete fucking idiots. Like, <laughs> will instantly true. just turn on a sixpence every time something happens that they're supposed to react to. <laughs> and another, yeah. 
another couple of bits on It's a Wonderful Life. Um, I mentioned that, that Henry the Town Drunk isn't a character, unless now here's a theory. Uh, P- Mr. Potter, his first name is Henry, in the film. Oh, that's right. Yeah. So maybe in Lister's fantasy, he's rejected uh, Potter's capitalism to such an extent that he's made Potter this hideous drunk, <laughs> uh, yeah, tragic and, and, kill, and killed his wife and kids. Yeah, I uh, say, that that being part of anyone's fantasy is a bit like you know, yeah. make, make you think twice. But yeah, I think it's probably just a coincidence that they're both called Henry, especially as uh, there's a mention of Potter's Pond at one point. Yeah, I mean, he'd be called Mister Potter, not Mister Henry, I imagine. Yeah, and um, Ernie. Uh, for some reason owns a gas station um, he's a taxi driver he's a taxi driver in the first book and he's a taxi driver in the film and now he owns a gas station <laughs> well it's just a side you know it's a sidekick isn't it like, <laughs> it's going to get taxed to fuck having two jobs <laughs> <laughs> well, and all, well only when only when only when Rimmer turns up like income tax wasn't a thing until Rimmer turned up in the uh... <laughs> 18,000 that's a lot of tax <laughs> yeah <it>? well <laughs> So then, yeah, Rimmer does turn up, ruin, ruin Bedford Falls, and um, Lister pulls a chemical toilet over him. Which is... <laughs> yeah. Oh, that was. A, I do enjoy a, that bit. Yeah, this is where the non-linear storytelling actually like there seems to be a good point to it because obviously we we do have the mystery of Trixie um, and just the 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 story being told off page and Lister yeah. reacting to it and then looping back around after we've got Rimmer's side of it was just. That that it was worth it. It's worth it for that sort of um, yeah. that satisfying reveal. I think. Trixie started to tell him everything, and when she'd finished, Lister got up, strolled over to the chemical toilet, wrenched it from the wall, and pulled it over her head. <laughs> <laughs> and then we basically just return to the rest of the story, and then it cuts yeah. back to uh, the prison cell right at the end. Cuts so yes, yeah, so you you can you can see how that would play out again in a film like the flashback type sequence. Yeah, I mean before we just before we get the uh, the reveal of Trixie though, we do get um, a little uh, glimpse into what the cat is doing yeah. with the little creatures and <laughs> oh, <God. laughs> genuinely one of the funniest bits of the audiobook is the fade out on Chris's. <laughs> so I'll edit it in, but you need to hear it. It is yeah. gloriously good. <laughs> His mallet arced up in the air and flashed briefly in the sunlight before sweeping deftly down and blasting the small furry creature between the two white posts to knock. It's just that, and I think there's a slight panning going on as well, but if there's not, there needs to be, because it just, it just, it's so fucking hilarious, these little dudes. There's some mild audio editing going on on the audiobook version, definitely. Um, yeah, it's so obviously there is in the radio show as well, like very heavy audio editing on that. Yeah, but I love the uh, the fact that these little dudes seem to have been created as like that's their job. Yeah, it's <laughs> their job is to be dogs. the ball. <laughs> it's kind of like Alice in Wonderland uh, um, when they're playing croquet in Alice in Wonderland, and there's little furry animals that like oh, yeah. obediently go and curl up into a ball and and, and go where they need it, to go. I mean, it is exactly that, isn't it? It's exactly I mean, it's, like Alice in Wonderland. Of, exactly of all the things that I want to see in the in the film version of this, would be a second furry animal go up from the bench, unzipped its miniature tracksuit, perform a bizarre <laughs> variety of warm exercises, and jogged chirpily to the centre spot. <laughs> Yeah, I that's... just love the idea of this little dude. I can imagine that being really tiny just kind of as well, like only two inches stri- high. Yeah, man, little weasel. <laughs> <laughs> I just love it. <clears throat> yeah, it's definitely better than shooting dogs. It's like 
<clears throat> they chilled out on the animal cruelty, but kind of doubled down on the sexual exploitation of cat's life. It is more um, apt for a, a real cat to play with the tiny animals. Yeah. Like if you see the way a cat interacts with a mouse or a or a shrew or whatever that it's found, is a shrew a tiny yeah. thing or a, yeah? No, shrews are tiny. Yeah, They're good. Different. <laughs> shrews only small though, aren't they? <laughs> I was getting confused between that and a stoat for a minute. But yeah, if a cat is playing with a tiny creature, it's it's playing with it. It's not trying to kill it necessarily, uh, unless it, unless it's hungry. Ooh, well, I think they're trying to prolong the fun of this thing. Like this yeah. thing could be terrified, but the cat will not give a shit. The cat will just do this as long as it has to until it stops. I have a memory of a mouse again. arcing past the um, the is it French windows, the patio doors <laughs> in our house, yeah. where Donna has decided that this mouse needed to do Whee! some gymnastics pretty quickly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, but then she like uh, many occasions when when she was a younger cat, <laughs> we would watch her play with these tiny creatures but she never seemed to be deliberately trying to hurt it she was just like wee no. wee wee this is fun and then she'd be disappointed when all of a sudden it stopped moving like she wasn't trying to kill the fucker it it's just really dark, happened to be <laughs> I, I think some cats are like a mock uh, uh, are definitely kind of killers and some cats are not killers i think donna's not a killer i had a yeah. cat that was a killer in that you, you could tell by the just the the Sea of dead birds called Dead Eyes <laughs> of a killer. <laughs> that line written by Dylan Moran. I will say though that in this little section with the cat, though the cat's getting a bit frustrated with the Valkyrie's constant oncomings as well. Like the cat's getting frustrated with the fact, like the approaches. He's mm. like, get off me! We're trying to, we're trying to have a game here. Yeah, it's he's like, getting a bit annoyed. The cat would turn down that, like you know. It happens in. BTL the episode I guess doesn't it with um, Marilyn Monroe pestering him yeah. and yeah it's starting That's... to get starting to grate a little bit it's like yeah. the fantasy's good up to a point but actually too, you can't have too much of a good thing and well you know what that is but well anyone anyone who's suddenly been attacked by a cat that has been accepting um, a stroke on the head up until that point will know maybe what that, <laughs> yeah. that's about just <laughs> actually no I want to bite you now fuck off <laughs> here's the thing which uh, again we must apologise to our listeners for the fact that we reread these books ready to record two weeks ago and then had to delay and then had to delay again and then didn't reread them again it says in this section um, where it's basically the little cutaway to the cat then there's all there's also a bit with Crichton Crichton says eight months later he was still there so mm. it's been eight months since Crichton turned up at this stage Right. But then we don't necessarily know how long it is between here and Rimmer turning up and ruining everything. So. Yeah, and everyone's time streams could be all over the place, I guess. Yeah. But yeah, Crichton bit, um, he's fleshed out here far more than he is in the first book. There's like, and I think it's obviously in the meantime, in real life, they'd written and produced series three. Um, so they had... Robert in mind, I would have thought, uh, when writing this bit, and also they've they've you know they've had um, the last day, which gives a bit of flesh to Crichton's character. Um, Silicon Heaven is introduced at this stage, um, which again, like it must be, it must have been really fresh in their minds at this point. Like they'd just done the last day, yeah. um, and then and then transpose that into here. But yeah, all of a sudden, Cat, uh, Crichton is one of the main characters in a way that he never really felt like he was in Infinity. He felt like a guest in Infinity. Um, yeah. They're kind of there to provide a bit of exposition at the end of being the one to, to drag them out of the game. 
Um, whereas now he's one of the. They've established that it's a foursome. And this is the first time when I'm reading Crichton, I realise now um, this is the first time that he's Robert in my head. Yeah. It was David Ross in the first book and he's Robert here. And obviously that makes sense timeline wise. And I'm probably being biased by the fact that I know that this was written after Robert and the first one was written before Robert. But you yeah. can just tell. You can just tell. Like, yeah, it, it, yeah, it's in the writing for sure. Yeah. Meanwhile, while all this is going on in the game, there's the occasional uh, chapter where we see what's happening on Red Dwarf at this time. And it's yes. Holly. Uh, now, this would have been. They never change Holly's gender in the book, from what I recall. Certainly not in this part. There's never any indication. Like, it's still there's yeah. still male pronouns are used for Holly at this yeah. stage, uh, despite the fact that has previously <laughs> alluded to the introduction. Thanks, Hattie, but <laughs> not Norman. And so, like, clearly, obviously, in the TV series at this stage, he's changed. There's such an opportunity because this is the bit where that later became White Hole. And that's an interesting uh, first thing for that, a start. Yeah, that is yeah. the first time that something from the novels gets turned into an episode rather than the other way around. Uh, but basically, yeah, the bit where Holly reboots and does the intelligence compression thing, that would have been the perfect opportunity to change Norman into Hattie. Mm, there would yeah. have been an in-universe reason for Holly to suddenly change appearance and change gender. Um, as it happens, uh, I, I find it interesting that we have a timeline where we've got the male Holly throughout the whole thing, yeah. throughout the books, because it adds an extra kind of wrinkle to the. This is different to the TV show. Yeah. On the other hand, it, yeah, it would it would have been a perfect opportunity to do that. It's straight. It's interesting. But no, you're right. I think yeah, the difference between Crichton and Holly and the changes that were made in series three is that they wanted to bring Crichton in as an extra character. Like that was a, a plan. Is like they'd used Crichton as a guest character in series two and thought, oh, that really worked. Let's bring Crichton in, and we'll have a permanent extra character that's a robot. They never wanted to change Holly. They no. it was only because of the all the kerfuffle that happened with Norman and moving to Edinburgh and refusing to do rehearsals, etc., that led to Norman leaving. It wasn't that they wanted to replace him. Yeah. It's kind of one of those things where in the books they can do anything. Uh, because they're not constrained by the logistics or budget of TV. And Holly changing to a woman was a logistical issue, mm. whereas here they can they can do what they want, and clearly what they want is for Holly to be a man. Hence, hence why every time Holly has returned from Series 7 onwards, it's always been Norman. It's interesting, the unique way that these books kind of trade off the show and trade off the actors, because at a certain point it's, it's inevitable that the actors are almost putting in work in your head for these characters. Yeah. I, I wonder if they got a bit of a perverse pleasure of just like, yeah, we, we're still going to use Norman in a way that he has no control over, because everyone's <laughs> yeah. going to be imagining him. It's like almost getting free yeah. work out of him. <laughs> <laughs> I find it really, like, the, the conversation between the toaster and oh by the way talkie uh referred to for the first time as talkie <clears throat> because in the original series one it was just the toaster mm-hmm. and um is described in in the book as being deep red plastic which is obviously what he was in series sure. four but wasn't in series one so like they'd kind of preemptively even though <clears throat> i don't know uh if there was an intention to convert this into a tv episode at this point they'd they'd started to to like design the props for the tv version <laughs> Yeah, even, yeah. even if it was just a coincidence. But yeah, the conversation, which is basically the we don't want any toast conversation, which is between the toaster and Lister in um, in the series. It's all there, but with Holly, and the lines are kind of ta- like there are differences in the lines, and they, it is 
is well tailored to to Holly's speech patterns and Holly's idiosyncrasies rather than Lister's. It's really good. When this came up and Holly, you know, the Holly chapter started, it felt like when I first read the book and also on this reread, it it feels like such a relief. Mm. Like you you you're in better than life, and you kind of get into the point where you're like, I've you know. Have I had my fill of this now? And then it's just, oh fuck, Holly's here, and he's talking to a talky toaster, and like it, the, everything about it is like gold. It just feels like gold yeah. dust, you know? Yeah, reassuring, I guess, like a bit of the real world. The way you described it there made me think of back to reality. Oop, there goes gravity. From the time when they uh, they hit game over and enter, you know, what's purported to be the real world, we stay in that world until quite late on. And it's only it only breaks down in the last sort of five minutes or so of the episode, and it's Holly turning up and saying hello. Can anyone hear me? As they're doing the yeah. uh, the car chase sequence, and yeah, Holly turning up and yeah, a reminder that Holly's there. Holly's like the the anchor, anchor. that yeah. we uh, that we cling on to. Like okay, this is Red Dwarf. This is our world. It's okay. Everything's going to be sorted out. What's interesting, obviously, David Ross wasn't uh, obviously series four hadn't happened by now, so the voice of the toaster in the audiobooks is like this kind of really gruff New York mm. um, thing, sort of. It's just it's weird to hear a sort of a, a variation of Talkie Toaster that isn't David Ross. Well, <laughs> it's it's, kind of it's it's not David Ross or John Lenehan. No, it's a very sort of brash, sort of gritty version of it's, yeah, because yeah. Rimmer does. He basically, when he does um, some of the vending machines and stuff, he sounds vaguely like he does a Tony Hawk's impression in the audiobooks. You'd have thought that he'd have done a John Lenahan <laughs> for this. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. Considering that David Ross hadn't been cast yet. And he is American, but it's not. I found it interesting that in, in here, it was the, it was Torque's idea to do the intelligence compression mm-hmm. in He's the TV more series. He's strained, isn't he? Yeah, in the TV yeah. series they experimented on the toaster to see if it worked and then tried it on Holly, whereas here, like, Holly just brings the toaster back because he wants someone to talk to. Yeah. And then it's the toaster's idea to uh, to do the intelligence compression without any input whatsoever from any sort of living <laughs> crew member <laughs> yeah. as to, like, whether that's a good idea, <laughs> whether that's what they want to experiment with. There's an edge to talkie in this that I like. So... First of all, I like the fact that Holly puts a tiny bit of effort into reason with him and mm. comes to an agreement and breaks out of the "Would you like any toast?" loop pretty easily. But yeah. also, when it when it's describing like w- w- the various stages of of Torky, um asking if you want any toast, I like how it just they've escalated that past the TV show to a point where he gets abusive. <laughs> yeah. Like he starts hurling obscenities and, and, and just. Just being completely unhinged when someone doesn't want toast. I, I, I like that they, they kind of took that extra step with him, and and also just you know having this kind of almost um, some basic AI that only has to think about a certain thing, and then as soon as it's freed from having to worry about whether people want toast, has a certain amount of processing that it can do, yeah, and like comes up with this plan, capacity, you know? yeah. and a plan that obviously is really flawed. Because you know it's not like it's unrealistic. Like, oh, he's a genius. He figured out how to make Holly brilliant. It's like, no, he's he kills Holly basically. Yeah. And I like Holly when he switches himself off, uh, then pauses, then switches himself back on, calls him a bastard, <laughs> and then switches <laughs> off again. It's a great. It's a it's a brilliant punchline to that like scene. It's a shame really that it didn't carry over into the TV. <laughs> it would have done well. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, I find it even though. 
this isn't supposed to be Norman's Holly and its male pronouns and everything, you can't not hear Hattie's voice during that. Yeah, say those no, lines. I would not like a crumpet. Yeah. Like, just because we're so familiar with White Hole. And also, in my head, I have, you know, Hattie kind of projecting herself as a hologram. I mean, Hattie didn't project herself as a hologram. Holly projecting <laughs> herself as a hologram. Yeah. Um, you know, a head floating, like, you know, I imagine, obviously, but but that's a more visual thing that, you know, obviously yeah. only happens in the TV show. What's, what's interesting, though, is that they actually st- stuck to the numbers for the TV show. So someone didn't, <laughs> like, someone must have asked them, okay, well, it must have been in the script written exactly the same as it is in the book, that the numbers are... 68, then 368, then 2068, yeah. then 12, <laughs> like those numbers are verbatim. So it's interesting that they actually yeah. stuck to that. Like for some reason, that was just a good method for them to get that. To it's, work. it's like it's revealing a new character, so it's it's a it's a good, but it doesn't really come across in the in the TV show that like that, like the way it's described in the book. No, they kind of do that more visually mm. with Holly's face, mm. with like with a, a cross eye. Really <laughs> then... Yeah, this good good Hattie moment, good Hattie episode. I love Hattie. International debris um, actually makes a point on the the Hattie thing, saying that basically it feels like Hattie, obviously, and it doesn't feel like Norman, and that's more like a a problem. And it's a good example of the pitfalls of obviously this isn't reusing material from the TV show, but it's essentially the same thing at, at yeah, this point. Is that time you well, as soon time as you do that, yeah, exactly. As soon as you do that and you change something innocuous about it, it suddenly feels like a load of sock puppets just repeating something that you've got in your head you know mm. it's it, it it's something that can really break you out of it and there are moments in this chapter where that comes in because when you really when they really do like reuse whole whole bits of text and obviously like why wouldn't they if it's good it it just it it just gets into the uncanny valley side of things and i know we've covered this before but um it's an interesting, interesting point. Like maybe if they were going to keep, if they were going to keep Holly as a he, why not give us a different thing to to chew on? If you know what I mean, mm. a different set of dialogue, basically, rather than transposing one onto the other. The only thing to disagree with that is because it was the other way around. In this instance, yeah, like, that's true. When so you why didn't first... they do that with a TV series? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> if you if you read the book when it came out, then yeah, you wouldn't have God. Yeah, it like it took it weird. took me a while. I remember to get my head around the fact that it was that way around. That Whitehall was adapted from the book rather than the other way around. Because it is very short. But yeah, you, you're right. There must be people out there that read that. That every time they see that scene in the TV series, they're like, "It's weird." Oh, hang on. This isn't as good as the book version. Yeah. <laughs> but then there's whole there's whole you know there's people that would be like would still be thinking oh, I still I still can't quite get my head around Holly being Hattie. Like, yeah. Because they experienced the switch and it was just like, oh, that's a bit unexpected. Yeah, <laughs> you know. Um, Whereas I initially, cause I watched, I, I'd seen, yeah, I'd seen series three and five before I'd seen anything earlier, mm. and so when Holly was suddenly a bloke <laughs> with yeah. a bald head, I was like, well, that's not Holly. Yeah, that's weird. Yeah, I think we've we've talked about basically all the different bits. Um, so there's Rimmer's story. Uh, which obviously affects everyone else's. Uh, but then there's the whole thing. The the reason why Rimmer has to go to Bedford Falls to pick Lister up and has to go and get Cat and Crichton is that suddenly uh, they all there's a thing where they all have to leave the game together because they're in a networked game. They have to all leave at the same time, yeah. which directly contradicts 
what is established in Infinity, and it's a it's a really memorable and it's a poignant bit in Infinity where it says, you know, you're born alone, you die alone, you leave the game alone. Except yeah. not now. <laughs> like, yeah. what is fact- essentially just a few pages later, if you were to see it as one continuous thing. It's just a really nice idea that's been um, that that's been scuppered by um, technical difficulties, basically. Yeah. It's like, oh, that's really, yeah, that's poetic and philosophy. Actually, no, you're all linked, so you have to exit. Sorry, it's it's a weird feature. You just have to do it. <laughs> yeah. But surely, like, if you're in an online game or a network game, and one person leaves, then the rest just carry on. Like the lot, yeah. You have to close yeah, down the entire lobby. Bot, maybe. Yeah, oh, that'd be weird. Yeah, Lister manages to get out, and he's just re- replaced with just a, a, a not very good AI just bumping <laughs> into walls. <laughs> <laughs> Give him brief approximations of what Lister might say. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, so you can never trust a game of Tetris ninety nine because you're you're playing against probably eighty percent bots. Just thought I'd say that. <laughs> That's something to get off your chest. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's bollocks. It's like if you're ever having a really good game of Tetris ninety nine, you're not good at Tetris. Yeah, it's because you're playing against bots. It's it's really frustrating. So here's a here's a point from Loathsome American who says um, um, does Rimmer saying I need a leak strike anyone sounding a bit odd or a bit wrong coming out of him and I think that's true I mm. especially think it's true because it's it's he says it as a plot point so it's almost like it's been kind of forced into his mouth <laughs> it is yeah you know? which is what he was worried about happening when he was Trixie of thinking forced <laughs> into his mouth but yeah it, I think it's it's clever the way that because of the non-linear way you read it, you, the, you first read Trixie saying, I need to take a leak, and it stands out because that's not a very ladylike thing to say. Yeah. Um, like, you know, using old-fashioned <laughs> uh, expectations of ladylike. Um, yeah, and then later on, expectations. later on, Rimmer, as Rimmer, says, I need to take a leak. And so that's a clue to the reader. Oh, hang on. Rimmer just said that weird thing that Trixie said. Maybe Rimmer and Trixie are the same mm. person. Yeah. But yeah, you're right, and oh, well, rather loathsome American is right that it is an odd thing for Rimmer to say in the first place. It's kind of incongruous. Yeah, it's like it's it was thought of and just. I mean, I can imagine Rimmer saying, "I need to take a leak." If he in one of his, so he has these moments of kind of a very brief kind of vulnerable moments, and you see mm. them in like "Thanks for the Memory." And better than life. So you see them in series two, basically. You can imagine him in better than life being depressed, and then him just like offhand just saying, oh, "I need to take a leak." You know what I mean? Like he drops his his pretense. He drops his um, his kind of cover, and he's just a normal person, just saying slang for going for a piss. You know, slang for going for a piss. <laughs> <laughs> the, you know the proper way of saying it. But yeah, the fact that it's 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 confident cocky rimmer that's saying I need to take a leak. Yeah, okay. Yeah. But then that links into something. Who was it? This uh, Clem uh, said in the comments. Um, Rob Grant has said a couple of times on the quarantine commentaries that he thinks of Rimmer as asexual, um, which I don't agree with. But then I didn't create the character. Never mind. A few things in uh, this back to Clem. A few things in the novels uh, bear this out. But I was struck by how boldly it's stated here. Uh, when we're told that Rimmer's new cock is sizable enough to put the fear of God into anyone who stood next to him at a urinal, which was all he was interested in. So yeah, he has that confidence and that swagger in the game, and that's down to the fact that he's given himself a massive, massive penis. Like yeah. the 
that in in Rimmer's diseased brain uh, is clearly a victim of toxic masculinity, which is clearly the patriarchal society is still a problem in uh, 23rd century Io, uh, where he believes that the size of his penis is directly related to his levels of confidence. So maybe this version of Rimmer that has that confidence, that artificial confidence could get away with, yeah, I need to take a leak, but not our Rimmer, not the Rimmer. uh, That's why it, it sort of, it stands out because we still think of the rimmer that we know and love. And it's interesting the asexuality thing because there's loads of stuff that support that, but unfortunately, there's then like the next sentence will will contain something that completely torpedoes it because, uh, you know, his thoughts about Juanita are pretty clearly sexual. But then you know nothing ever comes of that, does it? It's almost like like maybe he's like he hasn't quite realised that he's blocking himself for many of those things happening. When he was saying that like, you know he hadn't they hadn't made love in so long because of the insurance. Maybe that's not because of the insurance. Maybe it was more you know. Or he hasn't quite tweaked that it's this because this is his fantasy that it is himself that has invented that insurance problem to put the yeah that, yeah and, so he doesn't yeah. have to worry about it yeah, yeah yeah that's very true yeah. But he still has still conflicted with those thoughts of maybe thinking he has to have those thoughts. It's um, as as always, Rimmer is the most complex character by a mile. Yeah. Um, speaking of Rimmer's psyche or depth, uh, just a quick one that I saw from Dave, which is um, the juggernaut plowing through Bedford Falls is such a great visceral metaphor for Rimmer's affected mind and neurosis running through the game for everyone. It's like. It's like, yeah, just a moment of just, you know, a microcosm of this is what he is doing to the entire yeah. fantasy right now. Yeah. Is it, yeah, it's a very uh, gauche metaphor, really, when you think about it. <laughs> yeah. Rimmer's, Rimmer's bursting his way through and destroying everyone's fantasy, like he's driving a massive juggernaut through it. Meanwhile, he's driving this massive... Actually, it's worth pointing out that the writing of The Crash... And just how everything just goes to shit is really well done. It's like where Danny, you were saying about like struggling to to visualize some of the Prison Break stuff and some of the like mm. Tonto and Jimmy stuff. I think I I had that problem as well. But with this with this crash, it, it it's so clear in my head exactly like yeah. everything that's going on, like you know the the gas station exploding and um, oh yeah, yeah, poor old Ernie. Yeah, he's only just opened that. He's only yeah. just branched out into his. Uh, I hope he know, didn't sell his taxi. <laughs> we can go back to the taxi driving now. He had to take all the petrol out of it to kind of get him started in the petrol selling <laughs> business. <laughs> You've got to start somewhere. <laughs> so I think we've talked about everything that happens in the game, uh, pretty much, and then they come out and everything's fine. Or is it? Oh, is it? No. So this, could they have maybe chopped down some of the old Better Than Life stuff to make room for some new Better Than Life stuff? Because this is a really, really short bit. Yeah. That could have been amazing with a really slow kind of realisation, sort of a reveal. Well, it's kind of the same thing happens in the TV series. They very quickly think that they're back to normal, but then something happens that makes them realise they're not. Yeah, um, happens very quickly. But yeah, it's an interesting idea of like having an elongate, like a much longer section where things are just subtly different, and like some sort of like subtle clues to the to the yeah. reader that things aren't as they seem. But then, if that were to happen, would we feel a bit shortchanged if there was this whole 
you know, yeah, twenty odd pages or whatever that we thought was real, you know, new Red Dwarf, proper Red Dwarf progression. Oh, the whole and book. Then... Imagine yeah. that. Imagine the whole rest of the book, and then it hits you at the end, and then it was all a dream. Uh, yeah, actually, I would have fucking hated that, but it yeah. would have it would have been interesting. And actually, it's there's a there's a parallel here. I don't want to spoil the last human, but um, there is a situation in in that book um, where. Which is basically the exact opposite of what happens at the start of this chapter, the the, the Lister's morning routine um, mm. being amazing in this book. Um, oh yeah, spoilers. Yeah. He has a, an, an awful morning routine in Last Human. That's, yeah, that's very good. I really like how this is used as a, an excuse, basically, for just a load of slightly low rent observational comedy. Yeah, like t- 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 towels tend to be. Uh, you know, uh, oh, regulation towels are pretty crap, and God, you always drop your toast on jab side <laughs> up, don't you? I really like the description of the the towel that wraps around twice. I just like almost it's almost like meditative. I can just imagine a towel like that. It's just like oh, that'd be. A, <laughs> I don't have any towels that big. That'd be great. <laughs> I don't know. It's very evocative, but then at the same time, it's kind of like you know, look at all these annoying things about modern life. <laughs> I just, I just glanced at it now, and there was a bit that I'd forgotten about. Where yeah, it goes through all those standard things, like the butter side up and everything else, and microwave meals are a bit crap and bland. Then there's a bit where it just says, "He was frying his twenty-third egg without breaking a single yolk when Crichton walked in." Like it, <laughs> it does all the observational comedy stuff, and then it just tosses that one off in like half a sentence. Yeah, that's really good. But and and then Dennis McBean turns up. And Dennis McBean, <laughs> like the depiction of like the '90s nerd stereotype, which we're all familiar with from '90s comedy, of like the "Oh, I'm doing the shopping for my mom" type <laughs> yeah. nerd, but it's that it's quite harsh. It says it's a 14 year old boy with spiked greasy hair, wearing over large glasses, a purple anorak, and a wispy pubescent moustache. And it's just like, yeah. come on, that's your audience, mate. <laughs> yeah, although they hadn't been to a DJ at that point. That's true. <laughs> so maybe you know they hadn't they hadn't met actually what you know. I mean, that's the eighties, almost American nerd stereotype, really, isn't it? Yeah. It, it, it's yeah, it's strange. It's kind of like a, a bit. Um... What I find interesting about Dennis McBean, though, is he does say uh, you have negotiated the final obstacle in the most addictive computer game ever devised. Was the game? designed to be addictive this could be i took this to be dennis mcbean isn't the creator of better than life and it isn't wasn't designed. it's just the game saying oh well done you've done it and now i can offer you this a restart it's the last ditch attempt to please oh, stay yeah. in the game absolutely desperate to keep people in the game it's like they've they've actually exited the game or they think they have they've done everything that they need to do but they're still in it and then even after they figured that out, after they figured out that that's not real, they get then get offered a complete replay. It's just the game throwing as much at them as possible to make them stay in. But no, the the point which we covered quite a lot in the last one, and the, uh, when we were talking about the end of Infinity, about the game being so addictive, is like it was probably designed to be a bit addictive, in the same way that you want any game to mm. have replay value into like any sort of. Mo- especially like it was a mobile a game that relies on microtransactions, <laughs> you're going to want it to be a bit addictive. They probably just didn't intend for it to be so addictive that it killed everyone that used it. Yeah, it's, It is interesting how the book actually describes 
the episode of Better Than Life as well as the game version. Yeah. Basically, I thought we were being really clever with all of the observations we had last in the last one, and it basically just spells them all out in this bit of the book anyway. <laughs> like it just says, well, you can't just invent stuff and make stuff appear. That would be that would be weird, wouldn't it? It's like I thought I was being really clever thinking I'd thought about that, and then realised that probably got from this bit of the book. <laughs> but there's there's a, there's a section I need to find it, but it's basically it explains. Oh, this is it. Better than life operated on an entirely subliminal level. It wasn't possible, for instance, to wish for a turbocharged Harley Davidson and blip it appeared which it does in <laughs> yeah. early non-addictive versions of the game operated in exactly this manner and proved boring and unplayable after only a few days so I wonder whether that's them sort of critiquing their own episode at that point <laughs> yeah. yeah if you wished for Tony Hawks to appear in the middle of a beach <laughs> it just would <laughs> uh, this was found to be unplayable who wouldn't want Tony Hawks to appear in there that's in every point. every type of fantasy, every, every situation. <laughs> <laughs> but no, yeah, like both versions of Better Than Life exist. Yeah, it's because it's not it's not that they're retconning the TV version of Better Than Life. It's that was just no. an early. That was a version one point Yeah, yeah. That was like the the old top down Grand Theft Auto compared to the fully that immersive was, that 3D. That was the Grand early Theft access Auto. version. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or they completely like redid it. <laughs> yeah. There's some games, yeah, that start off in early access and then just be, basically get completely reinvented. Like um, We Happy Few, I think, is one of those. Just completely oh, really? changed. Yeah, yeah. Right. The whole concept, the whole, the whole, the whole like mechanics of it changed from a immersive sim to a uh, some piece of shit. I can't remember. I think we've just about covered everything that happens like other than minor bits that we might have missed it maybe doesn't feel like we have because we've been jumping around so much and going from bit to bit um but yeah i think all that's left uh really is to to root through some small points so let's have a little sting of music and do just that Uh, so let's start off with uh, some of the uh, comments from our beautiful listeners slash readers uh, that we haven't yet covered. Uh, Cy Bromley uh, says, I remember when Trixie LaBouche turned up in a magazine strip and feeling really smart that I knew who she was and where she'd originated, although I had no friends who were invested enough to be impressed. Uh, but no, yeah, there is some novel universe strips in this magazine, so towards the end of the run, if I remember correctly. There's a strip called uh, My Miss Crossing, which has Trixie LaBouche as one of the main characters, along with um, Dutch, who's an astro uh, that's mentioned in Infinity, I think. And yeah, they, it's it's kind of their story of their life on Mimus, which is a bit of a retcon for Trixie LaBouche because like she's she's in the better than life parts of the book. She's not in the Mimus parts of the book. But yeah, it's it's all about their run-ins with the Mafia, which is controlled by um, Little Jimmy Osmond. It's a it's a weird. <laughs> It's a it's yeah. a weird comic strip. <laughs> I'm really looking forward to this magazine like article slash dwarfcast that they're, they're going to be a riot. <laughs> Fucking hell! I think Rimmer might have read these, and then that's where he got the character. From. Yeah. <laughs> wheels within wheels. <laughs> so is Trixie said to be from the same book as Tonto and Jimmy? I don't think so. Could she be someone that Rimmer um, met on Mimus? Oh. Could she be one of the robot uh, droid prostitutes? She could, yeah, she could be just. Yeah, she could be the likeness made, of one of the robots. Yeah, yeah, he's taken that and made it into. Yeah, yeah. 
Or maybe there he didn't go. always maybe, visit robot brothels. Yeah, maybe she's an actual uh, prostitute yeah. from Mimus. Yeah. <laughs> Let's move on. International debris. Uh, the tone of the BTL sections in the two books always felt very different to me, which we touched upon a bit, but something specific that uh, they said here. Reminds me a lot of syndication TV shows which have season-long arcs and then end on a cliffhanger that sets up the following season in some way, but when the next season starts you can tell it was written six months later as it never quite resolves with the same tone. And yeah, yeah. I think that's a lot of what we were talking about, especially with like the way that they changed the way um, leaving the game works and um, how the way the It's a Wonderful Life stuff is integrated is slightly different. It's like, yeah, it's like it's designed to carry on straight yeah. straight off. And maybe if you read them a year apart or a year or so apart it's you know, close as enough. they were released, then yeah. it's close enough that you wouldn't necessarily notice. But when you're reading them back to back, as we are, and indeed how they were published in the Omnibus, yeah. which I imagine is how a lot of people a lot of people will have read those two books back to back because the Omnibus was such a huge thing. Indeed. I like that comparison though, the TV show cliffhanger, because like some, sometimes that can be just sloppy, but sometimes it can be like a stylistic thing. Like I always think of the West Wing, um, the end of series two, two cathedrals is this incredibly stylized moment leading up to the president deciding whether he's going to run again or announcing that he's whether he's going to run again at a press conference and it's all set to dire straits and you know it's it's incredibly stylized and everything like that and then in the first episode of series three you see the exact same thing but just from a, as a normal like kind of oh it's just you know it's just another press conference in a west wing episode and it's like mm. it has all the air taken out of it, it has all the pomp and circumstance taken out of it deliberately because it's just yeah. suddenly it's a normal thing that he's saying yeah well yeah we see we see the end of season two through Bartlett's eyes, and yeah. then the opening of series three. We see the same moment in reality. In reality, yeah. yeah. But that, that's not much nothing to, to do, do with this. It's just yeah, an excuse. <laughs> I really like the West Wing. Talk about the West Wing. Still getting in on dies. Or what was it we said before? We've decided that this person is called Ian Ides. Ian Ides. Yeah, he's still Ian Ides. It's still Ian. Okay. So we know how to pronounce it now. Still Ian Ides. Still Ian Ides says it's interesting to see jokes that were later incorporated into the TV series, such as a simple yes would have sufficed and the line about a diving suit with soapy frogs. Yeah, oh, yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's interesting that it's that way around. Uh, again, it's like obviously the white hole stuff, that's a much bigger thing that they take a whole plot from the novel. But uh, also little lines here and there that they first appeared in the books then later turn up in the TV series and obviously we've identified that Doug is definitely the one that has a thing about um, omelettes with big chips <laughs> in the very first chapter yeah, that's what you know. Vimmer goes for an omelette with big chips and uh, that is the same as in Ticker no not Ticker barely a joke beyond a joke yeah barely a joke yeah. Dave points out another thing that is uh, a common line between the book and the TV series um the traffic cone stuff, but instead of coming from the cat, it comes from Julius Caesar. <laughs> <laughs> I, do you know what? I hate it. I do hate it in these books. It's like lines that you just, you, they're so used to being cat and then it's just taken up with Julius Caesar. It's like it's happened so much. <laughs> you just can't read it in his voice. It's just bizarre. Pete Part 3 points out that there's talk of Alka Seltzer. What kind of sick mind does Rimmer possess that hangovers are still a thing in his fantasy? <laughs> <laughs> That's kind of self-evident. <laughs> Clem points out that when Kachansky speaks in uh, chapter three of this book, that's the first time that she's spoken in the Better Than Life fantasy. 
Yes. Mm. At all. Speaking of Kachansky speaking, yeah. I, I listened to the audio book version of this, and anyone who's listened to Atletico Mints will know that Chris's version of Kachansky sounds exactly like um, <laughs> Bob doing a Scottish song, <laughs> doing a woman on the Scottish song. Uh, Dave um, says, in his mind, Rimmer's wife Helen is automatically paid by Pippa Haywood. Uh, due to Britus having a wife called Helen. <laughs> okay, yeah, fair enough. <laughs> yeah, I'll go for that. <laughs> oh, Clem, um, you know we were talking earlier about the little um, creatures uh, that Cat plays with in his fantasy, and we thought yeah. it was similar to Alice in Wonderland. Clem points out, uh, they put me in mind of the dish of the day in Hitchhikers, specifically bread to be polo balls. Oh, uh, yeah. yeah. Whereas the dish of like the day, want like, to be eaten, happy they? to be eaten. Can I interest you in my liver? <laughs> Should we go through our own small points then? Yeah. I've got I've got quite a few, as I realise now as I scan through my notes. Rimmer gives Louis Sixteenth a Sony Walkman as a present. Now, given that Rimmer is from at least two or three hundred years in our future, <laughs> it's like the Sony Walkman was the height of technology in 1991 maybe <laughs> but for Rimmer yeah. maybe it's just like even at that state like even in in several hundred years time the Sony Walkman is still going to be remembered as an absolute classic like of design and, and of culture so it's still yeah. it's, it's going like, to like make a comeback cassettes bizarrely people are starting to ACDC's new single has been released on cassette and it's um, it's like I saw a headline this morning that like it has increased cassette sales by 8,000% or something <laughs> Well, yes, yeah, starting to make what? it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, that's saying that you've sold eighty when normally you'd sell one. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but no, there is a thing. Much like the vinyl snobs, there are now people that insist on that actually cassettes are good, even though cassettes are objectively dog shit. I was going to say I can believe vinyl, like um, that the, there are reasons why vinyl can be superior or like object, um, subjectively better. Mm. There is no reason on earth why tape would be. Objectively, subjectively, or any objectively better than any fucking thing. It's the <laughs> worst storage here. media. It, it was cheap, but it is the least effective way of storing anything <clears throat> that has ever existed. Yeah. Well, now now that things, music can be copied without loss and, yeah. and distributed without loss, there is no need for tapes. Ta- tape. Anyway. Games on tape were shit in the, the 1980s. <laughs> Like and and games were on tape for like a good like decade or maybe even more, and they were shit mm. then when they were the height of technology because discs existed. I'm I'm a bit bitter because I'm trying to get my Commodore 64 working on my fucking tapes work. <laughs> Another small point: as part of the wedding feast, uh, there are marinated giraffe carcasses over clay pit fires. Oh, uh, still no spit roasting. <laughs> Look, they were spit roasting it in in the first book. They were. They were they were turning it over a barbecue. That is spit roasting. <laughs> I mean, you know, obviously it's ended tragically. <laughs> so I've realised that I've got like three small points, and they're all about Holly and Talkie. Like, got clear, clearly my favourite part of the book. I, it's only just occurred to me, and everyone else might have already had this thought. Holly uh, resurrecting the toaster to keep him sane. He is trying to pull off the exact same trick that he's already done with Lister and Rimmer. Mm. And it goes about himself. as well, yeah, yeah. on himself. He's like he, he's going insane, and the only thing he can think of is bringing bringing something back that is going to antagonise him, just in the same way that he brought back Rimmer to antagonise Lister and keep yeah. him sharp. Um, and they do they do end up having a similar relationship. 
just maybe a bit in reverse. But anyway, yeah. yeah, yeah. It does make me wonder what a scutter would sound like if they actually had a voice unit. Level, yeah. not level. It's <laughs> the closest we've got to thinking there was a talking scutter. <laughs> yeah, they're just idiots. I'm still not. I'm still not entirely clear on what where that voice was coming from. It's a talking spirit level. But I mean, was it? Was there a <laughs> yeah. spirit level in that scene? Yeah, he's holding that a spirit the level. Point. It, was, it was a talking spirit level. It has been a while. To be fair, <laughs> it has been a while. That it was, I don't know. I I do remember discussions where people thought that the Tucker. The, the, oh yeah, fuck me. The, Stug- the Mike Scutter Tucker was saying that. The Mike, Mike Tucker turned up. Listen, Mike Tucker was nowhere near back to earth. <laughs> no, you can tell. <laughs> Rimmer answers the phone and just says "what" five times in five different ways. Uh, it was later um, used by Russell T. Davis as the cliffhanger for every series of Doctor Who. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that would, David Tennant would just say "what" in five different ways when something happened it, in the TARDIS. <laughs> if you look up the um, definition of, di- of diminishing returns, it's basically <laughs> just just those four clips. <laughs> it's just it's David Tennant as Doctor Who. Just in case the conversation was getting away from Holly and Talky, um, is the um, in brackets, patent applied for. Mm. What the fuck is that? <laughs> is that a joke from Rob and Doug? Oh, is it, you know, is that a joke for the reader that you know we're just repeating this patent applied for? Is it or is it something that is it this is it similar to like putting an R next to a name where you have to you have to keep saying the patent is applied for in order to you know is it a reference <laughs> to something you do in real life or is it a joke? That they've patented this idea, so we, we the reader, can't steal it. <laughs> See, so here's the question: in in the fictional universe, have Cropola Inc. applied for a patent for it, or yeah. have Rob and Doug actually applied for a patent for it in real well, life? It, what, what I mean is, it only works as the first thing. It only works as like a a, a joke within the text if you have other instances where you write the name of a product and if you've only applied for the patent and it's not been granted you have to put in brackets patent applied for that would work yeah. as a joke I, but I don't know of any instances where that even happens and so if that isn't the case then it has to be a joke that we've patented this and that, that and, and it's just a it's a meta gag don't, don't nick our ideas yeah don't nick our idea or like you know as if you'd ever nick it you know it's not actually a you know a serious thing I don't know you know and that, and that is something that's been I have been mulling on that for 30 years <laughs> we'll have to wait for the uh, we'll have to wait for the quarantine commentary and uh, on the Whitehall and, and ask Rob yeah what a world we live in what are we saying that Holly's IQ is in general before but- he did the experiment uh, well, not six thousand. Slightly no. lower than average. Are we to? T- mm. Are we Because if he's gone absolutely insane to the point where he can't read things like his own manual, then we're assuming that he's incredibly stupid. What? What's? Yeah. What's? Um, what's average for a human? Is it a hundred? Is it literally like? Is that the average point? A hundred. So if it's so if it is a hundred, if it, if we're roughly saying his IQ was a hundred, then well, let's say that because him. that's the math that you've done. <laughs> Well, I mean, basically, I've got like a, I've got a big old table that's got like every possible. <laughs> oh, so you work out his start thing and then move it along. Yeah. So basically, yeah. if Holly was ninety, let's say his IQ was ninety-six, right? Then that would mean that he would have lasted seven hours without 
the experiment. Oh, <laughs> oh right. We're talking exponential. So basically, every time he doubles his thing, he halves his lifespan, right? Yeah. So, yeah. So by the time he gets to 12,368, that would mean he had 3.45 minutes left. Right. But working backwards, if you work that out, that means that if he had 96 IQ, that would mean he would have lasted seven hours. So <laughs> they were in dire straits, and Holly really needed to do something about it. In order to have, if you had an IQ oh, of oh, one, they fucked the maths. <laughs> if you had an IQ of one, or an IQ of six, if you had an IQ of glass of water, he would have lasted two hundred and thirty-five hours, under ten days. So there you go. So there's no situation <laughs> where he would have lasted more than two weeks. No, it's kind of yeah, ninety-four. Eight. If he was ninety-four, yeah, nine hundred and forty-two hours. If he was like an IQ of one point five, that's really cool. So yeah, yeah they fucked. The and maths. I think what that proves <laughs> is that at this stage, um, Grant Naylor didn't know what the word exponential meant. <laughs> I think what they meant is logarithmic, but yeah. <laughs> if you could um, scan that or type it up, we'll put it in the show notes. People yeah, can no figure out their own <laughs> IQs. Well, you know what? I mean, it's a, here's a, it's an interesting question because Holly is Holly has moments where he's so like he he's lower. His intelligence is presented as lower than your average human, your average adult. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. but then other times it's not. So it's almost like his IQ is still higher than a human's, but it's not high enough to handle all the different things he has to handle, and so it's taking things away from him. So he could have started at like you know he could have still been a thousand, you know. So I think what's going on is there is like like imagine memory banks being scattered all around the ship, and they're basically yeah. like where there's various bits of information is stored. Some of them are dead. Some of them are still working. Some of them are working quite well. So it depends on the question you're asking him. So if you're Mm. asking Holly a particular question about something that the memory bank is pretty well good with, then he's going to be good at it. It's a little bit like dementia, where you're going to have um, like pockets of ability where their brain is quite good at it, and then there's going to be areas where they're shocking. Right. And so there's going to be, you know, unless you like reboot that specific memory bank, then that's just not going to come back. The, this exponential thing is like using all of his memory back, all of his existing running time, and then pushing it all into it, you know, and that's, that's the working everything. Ones. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that's how I understand it, anyway. That's really good. That's really interesting. Well, Crichton should be able to help because over the years he's had more RAM than a field of sheep. Because <laughs> that's how RAM works. Because that's how nothing works. I have an extremely small point, and it's a really meta one as well. Do you remember I got into a, a bit of confusion as to whether the ending of Infinity implied that in Bedford Falls it was always Christmas Eve, whether that meant Lister going, oh fuck it, it's Christmas Eve it's going to always be Christmas Eve so I better go or is it Lister saying um, it's always Christmas Eve so I'm trapped. Yeah. There is a callback to that line in the, towards the start of this book but it changes it to but then again in the fictional town of Bedford Falls it was always Christmas Eve and I'd remembered then again I'd misremembered the then again bit being part of the ending um, of Infinity, and I think that's what's caused me to think that it was then again. It's always Christmas Eve, so I might as well leave. Yeah, because that second instance is Lister realizing the bind that he's in. He, yeah, he, he, yeah, he's accepting it's a, it. But it's he a subtle change to the line that changes yeah. the meaning in the between the first book and the second book. The only mistake I made was misremembering which one was where. Yeah. I think this version is supposed to imply it's always Christmas Eve. Yeah, yeah. Um, casually, it's established uh, that Lister is the creator of the universe. Yeah. In this. Fucking, yeah. 
which is uh, is such a bombshell to throw in there as well (laughs) yeah it's during the um the conversation between talkie and holly where he's testing out uh, holly's knowledge and uh it just holly just tosses off the line yeah lister creates the universe which is again it's only referenced once in the tv series as well in back to reality um and that's yeah, you know, that's obviously within the fictional yeah. game of Red Dwarf. Uh, then Lister yeah. turns out to be God, but it's it's weird that that has happened twice now, and that definitely feels like something that was seeded in this book to maybe be picked up in a later book. Uh, it's just that they never wrote a book together again, like, and it, and probably yeah, forgot the that they'd done that. Human. Yeah, yeah. If the last human would have happened, and within the same sort of pace as uh, as the difference between Infinity and Better Than Life. Uh, they also see uh, backwards in this because they actually say oh, yeah. says, Big uh, crunch. why does the universe not make sense? Because it does, it's just going the wrong way around. Uh, yeah. yeah. So that's that's, a, that's seeding is, the next book. Which or, is incredibly you know, ironic general. considering that they've never once nailed the concept of time running backwards making any fucking sense whatsoever. <laughs> <laughs> I've just looked at it. There's less than a year between these two books. Infinity was released 2nd of November 1989 and Better Than Life the 25th of October 1990. Less than a year. Imagine having a new Red Dwarf novel every year. Imagine having a Red Dwarf novel. <laughs> Very good. So my final proper small point is um, when Rimmer is as Trixie LaBouche uh visualizes the pink door runs into it and just bounces straight out um reading that now reminded me of the game fall guys um (laughs) (laughs) there's a round in fall guys is basically the in case anyone doesn't know is the video game equivalent of sort of takeshi's castle uh with a bit of total wipeout and stuff like that It's, it's like you're on a little obstacle course and you've got to make your way to the end and if you the first 40 people to make it through goes to the next round and so on but there's a round in that where there's like six identical pink neon doors and some of them are real and some of them are fake and people just bounce off the pink neon doors <laughs> always got to wait wait for other people to go ahead first exactly and then just hope that you sneak at the back there is a round like that in Takeshi's Castle isn't there where there's yeah. all the yeah. fake doors like some of them are real some of them are not some of them have got like water right behind them yeah except that they're not bright pink and of course, yeah. Takeshi's Castle in the UK, narrated by Craig Charles. So it's all come round. Not anymore. Oh, what? Is Takeshi's Castle still going and it's not Craig Charles? Yeah, they've gone back to the original Japanese episodes and done new reversions of them, except it's uh, not Craig Charles anymore. I'm going to look this up rather than make it. So, yeah, originally Craig Charles, and then there was Takeshi's Castle rebooted, uh, which was Dick and Dom. I think that's Dick and Dom did it. That's quite a good fit, actually. <laughs> there was a new series on Comedy Central a few years later with Jonathan Ross. Okay, right. Which is worse. So, just as um, Lister is preparing to leave the game uh, with Rimmer, um, he sort of goes through in his head um, how far he is away from home. And the ridiculous set of circumstances that have happened since that fateful Monopoly board pub crawl and ended up on Mimus, etc. So he says he's um, stuck on Red Dwarf uh, and they haven't got a prayer of getting back to Earth. But in Infinity, it's established that they entered the game after they'd repaired the Nova 5. Uh, the Nova 5 is ready to go with its duality drive all fueled up and they could easily get back to Earth. Uh, within months that seems to have completely disappeared 
the Nova Five yeah. is not, is not a thing in this book, which is a bit of a shame, I guess. I can't even remember if it was even tossed off in any way, but I don't think it was, was it? it... I don't. It hasn't so far. It hasn't in this yeah. first part. I don't know. I can't remember if it if it is in subsequent parts, but yeah, it seems to have just been either forgotten about deliberately or accidentally. <laughs> It's either been retconned or they just forgot that they'd done that. It's like having the time drive around, isn't it? You can't do anything but fucking ignore it because it's too powerful. Yeah, otherwise yeah. the entire premise changes. But then yeah. you could easily do it in, in just by saying that they entered better than life before they'd finished repairing the Nova 5 and it turns out that it doesn't work. Or, you know. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's what we are to assume is that it doesn't work, and they find that out. It's just that they don't. Yeah, they don't tell us that. <laughs> and I can believe it not working because it was Rimmer and Rimmer and Lister and yeah. Cat and uh, and Crichton who was useless trying to put it together. And yeah, he can believe it not working. Yeah, particularly the fact that it was that yeah, Lister and Crichton were the only people that could be competent potentially yeah. had left and left it to the two Rimmers who destroyed half the Scutters in the process. But that was the last book. Who cares about that book anymore? I think that's all of our small points. Uh, so all that remains is for us to reveal our small passages, uh, which are tiny little sections of the book that are particular favourites of ours for whatever reason that we just like to highlight for you, our lovely listeners. So let's go through them as in the order that they appear in the book, and I believe Caps's yours comes first. Indeed. Back in the 21st century, as robotic life became more and more sophisticated, it was generally accepted that something was needed to keep the droids in check. For the most part, they were stronger and often more intelligent than human beings. Why should they submit to second-class status to a lifetime of drudgery and service? Many of them didn't. Many of them rebelled. Then it occurred to a bright young systems analyst at Android International that the best way to keep the robots subdued was to give them religion. Hallelujah! The concept of Silicon Heaven was born, a belief chip that was implanted in the motherboard of every droid that now came off the production line. Almost everything with a hint of artificial intelligence was programmed to believe that Silicon Heaven was the electronic afterlife, the final resting place for the souls of all electrical equipment. The concept ran thus. If machines served their human masters with diligence and dedication, they would attain everlasting life in a mechanical paradise when their components finally ran down. In Silicon Heaven, they would be reunited with their electrical loved ones. In Silicon Heaven, there would be no pain or suffering. It was a place where the computer never crashed, the laser printer never ran out of toner, and the photocopier never had a paper jam. At last, they had solace. They were every bit as exploited as they had always been, but now they believed that there was some kind of justice at the end of it all. And isn't that just a bit like life? <laughs> so what else is new <laughs> yeah that's basically yeah, an expanded upon version I mean that's the, like, I think that is is, uh, is an example of the benefit of prose where in the last day that concept came across in dialogue but they can flesh it out here by having it relayed from a neutral observer's standpoint yeah, rather the, the, than Crichton, yeah. Crichton believing in it or Lister uh, dismissing it. Yeah, the book describing it, basically. Yeah. The voice of the book. Uh, Peter Jones. If <laughs> I was hoping you were going to... Uh, there's a bit further on, which I had a small point about, uh, where it, it is written in the Electronic Bible, 
It is harder for a droid who disbelieveth to pass through the gates of Silicon Heaven than it is for a din-din coaxial cable to connect up to a standard European SCART socket. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Similarly to my small point about the Sony Walkman, I just love the fact that a SCART socket is still a thing when Crichton was built. <laughs> As if anyone's yeah. going to know what that is. My small passage uh, concerns Frank and the differences between Frank and Arnold Rimmer. Frank looked like Rimmer should have looked. All the same features were there, but subtly reshuffled to give an infinitely more pleasing effect. Even Rimmer's body tailors could do little about this. Frank was effortlessly handsome. His hair tumbled in neatly cropped plateau from the top of his head, whether he combed it or not. Rimmer's sprouted like an anarchic privet hedge, even after hours of patient grooming. Frank's eyes were the deep blue of a holiday brochure sky, instead of the wishy-washy murk Rimmer's had elected to be and unlike Rimmer's, were a decent distance from his nose. But it was the nose department where Rimmer really lost out. Rimmer's nose was sharp and petulant, crowded on either side by nostrils so flared they looked like wheel arches on a Trans Am Turbo. Frank's nose was a nose, and that was the difference. There's so much good stuff packed into what is essentially one paragraph there. Like yeah. Trans Am wheel arch nostrils, that later turns <laughs> up in the show. Uh, the fact that Rimmer's eyes had elected to be a wishy-washy mark <laughs> like yeah. the eyes they, Rimmer believes that his eyes are spiting him by looking like that <laughs> <laughs> I guess similarly his nose is petulant the, his main description of his nose is that it's a petulant nose it's just brilliant yeah it's perfect in the audiobook I think Frank is sort of portrayed as more like an ace-like figure as well he sounds, like, yeah. He sounds he much more like a sort of a more yeah. handsome version of Rimmer, basically. But then that's also the Frank, the voice that he does for Frank in uh, Time Slides. Oh, that's true. Yeah, Squire Hoppet. <laughs> He's kind of, yeah, Ace is a kind, of, yeah, is the same. That's obviously Chris Barry's go-to. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. Suave, handsome man. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The sort of the better Rimmer. Yeah. Uh, what's your small passage looking like, Danny? Uh, so basically, the bit, the bit I, that, that stuck out for me more than was the uh, the second attempt at the trying to get them back in a bit in life, where everything's just a little bit too good. He spun the taps and water Niagara onto the pine-scented rubber shower mat. He pushed his hand into the curtain of water, warm and perfect, not hot, not cold, just perfect. Good to be alive. He scrubbed himself first aid clean, grabbed a thick white towel and dabbed himself dry. He padded back to the coffee machine and sluiced down quite a superb cup of espresso. He poured himself another. The second cup tasted even better than the first. And that's when Lister started to think. The second cup tasted better than the first? The second cup never tastes better than the first. He clicked open the fridge door. It looked like an advert for refrigerators. It was packed with fresh vegetables and crisp salads. There were eight kinds of cheese, various slices of lean cooked meat, a whole salmon, a rack of lamb, tipped with little paper chef's hats and a little bottle of champagne on chill. Was this really his fridge? Where was the curdling milk struggling out of the top of its carton? Where was the strange smell that sent his stomach into a loop-de-loop -loop and was impossible to track down? Where was his spare pair of trainers? What is it with Grant Naylor and trainers in the <laughs> Such a weird thing, and it comes up all the time. <laughs> Anyways, he usually kept them in the ice compartment to cool down. There was nothing in the ice compartment except a varied selection of delicious-sounding ice creams and, for the first time in history, some ice. What was ice doing in the ice-making compartment of Lister's fridge? Where was that indefinable green mush in the salad tray? 
the one that resulted from decaying vegetables blending together. So it was impossible to tell where the lettuces ended and the cabbages began. <laughs> no, this was the fridge that belonged in a mail order catalogue. This was the fridge that the Great Gatsby flung open when Daisy came calling. And there was something wrong. And what was wrong? That there was nothing wrong. And nice. I quite like that. I like the fact that like the, the game is just trying that one that last ditch attempt and just making everything just too... I don't know, it's weird because it's... it's, it's it's trying Strange. to be mundane, but it's failing. Yeah, it's but it's, it's getting it wrong. It it still can't quite sort of do it realistically. Where it will, you know, it's like Lister's not Lister's too smart to realise that that's yeah. Normal. Maybe if like one of those things, like if if the towels were just that little bit fluffier than normal, and the and like it, or if the coffee was better, you know, if the second cup tasted better than the first with the coffee, or if yeah. the fridge had fresh stuff in it, but all of them together. Add up to Lister realizing. Hang on a minute. Yeah, yeah. And I guess at this point, Lister's realized he's already come to terms with the fact that he he doesn't expect life to be perfect. Yeah. So he knows as soon as life is perfect that something's wrong. Because you know he he's not after that for himself. Uh, yeah, really that think. doesn't. That's that's when it that's when it doesn't ring true for him. Yeah. And again, sad. it was when everything was a little bit too perfect and about the life it was starting to bother him as well. Like yeah, everything yeah. was like his, his kids were too perfect and things like that. Yeah. Even though that like the brain just the better than life's default state is to try and go for that level of perfect. Yeah. And even that seems to be wrong for some people. It's like they do rally against it. And yeah, it's like it's the game changing tact because throughout the whole thing, like not everything in the fantasies was absolutely perfect. There had to be a logical reason for it. There had to be compromises in places like. Rimmer's time travel technology had to have limitations where the clock was always ticking and um, the sologram thing, it, it, like they couldn't do anything about his face and like not absolutely every element in those fantasies were perfect except now the game's changing tack and is making everything absolutely perfect as a last ditch attempt and that's not working either. But what is interesting is the fact that it is good enough to fool Rimmer, Crichton and Cat again. Mm. Because they are for Rimmer falls for it straight away. Crichton falls for it straight away. Yeah, if it wasn't for Lister. Yeah. Yeah, Lister's literally just one going, no, we're still in the game. Like, and then and then Rimmer immediately gets it and just goes, oh, for fuck's sake. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's a bit that they didn't really play this out, but they, they, there was almost an opportunity to kind of like to fool, to properly fool the reader as well. When they when they say, oh, you know, Crichton, Crichton comes in and says, the most amazing thing, we found three stasis booths that we didn't know about, and guess who's inside them? That's that's almost like that's almost like teasing the reader because that's almost like something that maybe the reader of the book who's watched the show would really love to see. You know, oh, Peterson Kachansky and Rimmer, you know, survived. Yeah, yeah. It's just, it just, it, it's all, it's all too much, isn't it? It's all like sickly sweet. It's good. I'm looking forward to reading more of this. Well, let's do so in the next edition of the Dwarfcast Book Club. Um, so yeah, we'll be back in probably, hopefully, around three weeks' time uh, to discuss the next section of the book. Uh, which is called She Rides. My favourite Thundercat. <laughs> and if you'd like to uh, contribute any more Bon Mots such as that one, <laughs> uh, your thoughts, analysis, opinions, jokes, uh, please leave us a comment on the article for this Dwarfcast over at www.ganymede.tv. Please do indicate in your comment whether you're making a, a point relating to a specific uh, subchapter of the book or something more general. And please keep it brief because we've got to sit and copy and paste all these into a document on the day that we record and it's, it's such a so difficult we'll let you know when we're about to record the next one to uh, give you a deadline for when you want, need to leave your comments or we, we just won't bother um, 
But before that Dwarfcast is released, uh, the next one that we do uh, will be our commentary on Officer Rimmer as we continue our trawl through the Dave era. Uh, and that will, of course, come with an edition of Waffle Men, where we bollock on about anything you want us to. Uh, we've got lots of topics in the bank for that one now, so thank you very much to everyone that submitted them. Uh, but if you want to get in touch with us for whatever reason, uh, leave us a comment on GNT or tweet us. Twitter handle is Ganymede Heighton. Okay. So this should give you an idea of the kind of person we're working okay. with. Okay. And all that remains for us to say is thank you so much for listening. Uh, stay safe. And as always, Ed bye, everybody. Ed bye. Thank you for listening to GNT Dwarfcast, and we hope sometime in the future you'll decide to listen to our Dwarfcast again. Have a safe onward journey. Goodbye. Is that honey? You hear, you hear like... <laughs> yeah. Have I been hearing Donna shouting at you? Yeah, for the last few yeah. minutes. <laughs> there was one point where she jumped up on the table and meowed right into the mic. So <laughs> <laughs> Good. I wasn't talking at the time, so it can be cut out. I might put that at the end. <laughs>